bringing the attention into the body, the body that is always here. What do you notice now in your physical experience? What particularly stands out this morning in this moment? Nothing in particular stands out, then use the breath as an anchor. What is the predominant feeling tone in this moment? Is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? Or perhaps notice particular aspects of your experience, particular sensations that are pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Notice the changing nature of sensations, of feeling tones, This is what we've been exploring so far, the first two foundations of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of Vedna, or the feeling tones. This morning, we're going to move on to the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of mental states states of heart and mind that invoke or use both the mind, the thoughts, and the feelings in the body, the sensations in the body, the emotional tones of our experience, attitudes, moods that we bring 
to our practice, to our lives. We begin to explore this whole very rich, kind of complicated area of mind states. And we see in, in, we see how the focus on the body and on feeling tones really prepares us, really will be the foundation for our exploration of mind states, will help us to see how mind states are operating in our mind and body. humans we are subject to a whole range of emotions and moods and attitudes and we begin to get a sense of our own range at times we may feel quite content quite happy quite even delighted or interested or curious or satisfied. Other times we feel other things. We may feel despair or discouragement or anger or rage or fear or doubt or anxiety or worry. Buddha spoke over and over about sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and fear. <laughs> sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and fear as sort of a umbrella way of describing the full range of difficult mind states that we come upon in our practice. Our meditation is in the service of helping us to have greater equanimity and ease around the difficult mind states and a greater sense of the capacity we have for very uplifting mind states, mind states that are happiness producing that help us to feel well and calm and safe and connected to our lives. So meditation is a little bit like cleaning out the garage or the attic or something. It's described as a purification process. We're, we're opening ourselves to the experience of many different emotions and mind states, perhaps things that we thought we have dealt with or things that have felt like they haven't been around and now suddenly they're here and we'd rather they go away kind of like going into the garage and opening up boxes and looking inside and thinking, oh my God, what's this? 
Sometimes it's like that on the cushion where you see that you're still telling yourself some story over and over, a story from the past or a worry about the future. We get another opportunity to find a way to be at peace with these difficult states. We hope they'll go away. Sometimes they do, but more often they, they come when they require some attention from us, some, some kindly acceptance. Then they tend to be less intrusive. But we discover that they're not going to easily just disappear. So we need to find a skillful way of, of uh, coexisting, of working with them skillfully. And mindfulness gives us those tools. It allows us to understand difficult emotions. It's like a troubled child. It doesn't help to just say to the child, stop it. <laughs> they would if they could. But our job is more to understand what it is they need, what it is that is troubling them. Same with our difficult mind states. We need to kind of make friends, show them that we're willing to help them if we can, you know. We're, we're engaging with a, we're bringing our resources of awareness and kindness to the situation. what we're called to do. So as we sit here, we get to explore whatever mind state might be present. We don't go looking for mind states. We don't try to make them happen. But we notice when they do appear what they're made of. It's like we want to know the recipe. So for example, anger arises. You'd rather it didn't, but some sort of irritation or upset or feeling of aversion, not liking something arises. And you notice it has a story. Anger, usually all the emotions come with some sort of story. Some story they tell us over and over again. Anger is the story often of blame. They didn't do it right. Or I'm to blame. I did it wrong. Somebody must be held accountable, it seems, when we are angry. So we get to see the story. And we know that repeating the story endlessly doesn't really help. When we repeat the story, we get more upset, more convinced of the need to be angry, perhaps. So the 
approach of mindfulness is to say, yes, see the story. When it arises, acknowledge it, see it. Uh, this is the story of anger. And see the, what it's made of. It's made of thoughts, lots of thoughts, lots of images of the past, perhaps images of the future, of what you will tell that person the next time you see them, or what you will do better the next time so that you don't screw it up or whatever. You begin to see that story. And then mindfulness suggests that we let go of all those thoughts. And the other part of a mind state is what's going on in the body when we're angry. What's going on in the in the gut, in the, the, the tissues of the body, different areas of the body. Maybe we feel short of breath or we, our throat feels constricted or we feel heat in the body. Heat is often associated with anger. So we let go of the story coming and we come into the body and we feel the sensations. Well, this is how anger feels in the body. It's tight, it's pounding, it's throbbing, it's hot, it's energized, it's whatever it is. And we stay with those sensations. We breathe with them, we let the sensations unwind. We make space for them to be felt without catastrophizing, without blame. We just allow the sensations to be there. And we see as we sit with them, they're in a constant process of change. One moment it's heat and pressure, the next moment it's throbbing or pulsing, or maybe there's a sense of, oh, I can breathe a little more now, or it changes as you observe it, and we notice that as well. So we're not stuck with these e sensations when we notice their changing nature. perhaps worry arises. Worry has a story, doesn't it? It goes on and on. Worry, worry, worry. We can drop the story, go into the body. Where do we feel worry in the body? How does it express itself in the body? Where is it held? Where is it tight? Where is it unpleasant to feel. Maybe it's a wrinkled forehead. We notice, we allow the sensations to unfold. And 
Now, after doing this with any emotion that arises, I mean, fear has a big story, grief has a big story, despair has a big story, guilt has a big story, jealousy has a big story. They all come with stories. So we get to look and see what those stories are about. And we get to feel in the body how the, how the body is holding that emotion. When we stop telling the story, that begins to ease the situation. When we allow the sensations to unfold, that begins to ease the situation. when there is no story arising or emotion arising that is particularly predominant, and you stay with your awareness of the body, of the breath, not to work on ourselves, it's more the attitude is more of allowing ourselves to unfold in our own time, in our own way. And when something does arise, that's the time to bring attention. Of course, I've talked about the difficult emotions, but when there are emotions of calm or peace or joy or contentment <coughs> or ease, they may not have such big stories, but you can certainly acknowledge their presence and feel them in the body as well. What is it like in the body when there's joy? What is it like in the body when there's a sense of contentment or calmness? And in this way, we become aware of the entire range mental states, mind states. Just recognizing emotions is a big part of this. We sometimes are aware of something, but we're not sure what it is. That can also be true. So. You, you stay with it. You kind of <coughs> are curious to see 
Is this doubt or is it depression or what is this? Let it reveal itself.
What are you aware of right now? More important than what is happening is, are you aware of it? Before we go into the walking, are there any 
questions ab <coughs> about the instructions this morning? Yes. said three things. Uh-huh. You asked the question. Mm-hmm. Until it got warm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very persistent de demon. In the Tibetan tradition, they call these kinds of states demons. And we can see why. They're very persistent sometimes. Yeah, so oftentimes we discover that demons are trying to take care of us. They think they that we need their help, like especially like money. Who doesn't need help with that? You know, so we better whack him on the head, you know, really hard to make sure he hears that he needs to, blah 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 blah, whatever. So it's it's a persistent phenomenon, and there's there's vivid there's colorful stories in the Tibetan tradition, like about Milarepa who had. You know, he was out in the wilderness, you know, eating nettles and practicing in his cave. <laughs> and he kept getting visited by all kinds of demons, you know. And so we, we see in our own experience, we see, yeah, there are things that are not so easily gotten rid of. We have all the meditation tricks in the world, and they're still coming around. So I'll just add a few other things and we'll see, you know. But I would say one is the attitude towards the whole phenomenon. Imagine, like Joseph Goldstein often says, imagine that, okay, you're going to be with this demon for the rest of your life. 
how are you? How are you? <laughs> no, no. But what if you were? You know, how can you have a, a an easier, friendlier relationship? Like the Buddha had Mara. He was the personification of his, of a demon, you could say, that just wouldn't leave him alone. And he kept coming to try to, you know, keep the Buddha from getting awake many times. And he even came after the Buddha's awakening. He kept visiting the Buddha. By then the Buddha, you know, he didn't, it wasn't, such a big deal anymore. So he would invite Mara in for tea. Okay, Mara, you're here. Let's have tea. What's up with you today? How are you feeling? You know, <laughs> tell me what's on your mind. <laughs> so a different attitude. The attitude of resistance will keep it locked in. It just will. The other thing I would say is... Um, Sometimes it's worth working a little more in the content of what is the belief that if you don't pay attention or listen to this fear, it sounds like fear, survival. Yeah. No, uh, fear is not rational. Mm -mm. So, what's the worst that could happen? Aha. Uh -huh. And then what would happen? And then what would happen? Downgrade, and then what would happen? That's the worst that could happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not hearing any images of being homeless and ill on the sidewalk or something. Uh huh. Yeah. So there's some kind of belief in there that might be worth exploring. And and is it, you know, sometimes uh, it's some kind of belief that keeps things in place. Mm-hmm. Sure, the mind is complicated, yeah. I don't know if you ever have been with Byron Katie. Mm, you might try s doing some of her uh, belief work. 
Yeah. Yeah, what have you got to lose? Where you look at your beliefs about other people or about yourself and you get to work with them directly rather than them being more subterranean and, you know, driving us without our <coughs> awareness. She has a, a process she takes people through. And she's quite a liberated being herself. So that also really uh, helps. Yeah. She had a big awakening experience, seemingly out of nowhere. And she went home and um, realized that all the beliefs she'd had about life had to change. That to be, to be awake meant these beliefs were no longer relevant. So she's speaking from a deep place in herself, but her process is, can be, is powerful. Yeah, it's helped a lot of people, including me. Yeah. Okay. In August sometime, she does a benefit. Y it'll be in the catalog, yeah. Yeah, it sells out like, oh, yeah. She's a f she's fun. She's very. <laughs> okay. Anyone else? Yes. Yes. That's right. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to, it's a sorting process, I think, of listening to all these different voices and seeing kind of, if you believe this voice, where does that go? You know, but then, uh, but also think of the wisdom of not knowing. I mean, the truth is we can't know a lot of, we don't know how we're going to die. We don't know when we're going to die. <laughs> we're going to die. <laughs> Maybe we don't even believe that quite yet, you know. <laughs> like Stephen Levine used to tell the story of standing in front of a large crowd somewhere teaching about death and dying, hundreds of people, and he... He said to the crowd, he said, how many of you are going to die? <laughs> and he said it took a really long time <laughs> for people to raise their hands. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, we don't quite get it, you know. Yeah, we don't quite believe it. Other people, sure, we, we notice other people die, but... So there's a lot in there to, there's no answer except your own kind of like what is required of you in facing this? What is required of each of us in coming into a more accepting, harmonious 
relationship with aging, with illness, with dying. It's a process. And awareness is our best guide. You know, if you listen to the commercials on television, well, that will give you one way to go. You know, get your, your acorns all lined up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and your money, you need tons of money to retire well. So, you know, for some of us, that ship has sailed. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But what, you know, so there's a lot of questions that get generated by this exploration, you know, like, okay, so I don't know. How can I be at ease with that? What is the preparation that I need? Let your wisdom come forward. Your survival mind won't help you much. It will, it will, you know. How much is enough anyway? How much money is enough? Even people with tons of money may still feel, ah! <laughs> so it's all relative. But let your wisdom mind um, really get, invite that in. So that you're seeing to live and it's not so much about the future as it turns out as it really is comes back to what about this moment here now do I need to know right now when I'm gonna die <laughs> I don't think so today will be okay even if I don't know that you know so we use the present moment, we use our awareness, we use our wisdom to stay in touch with what it is. How do I want to live now? It's like this quote from uh, Martin Luther King I put on the flyer. You know, it's not so much about having to figure out things that are go going to happen, but what, are, what is it that is alive in us today? kind of takes care of it when you know today is well used. It kind of takes care of it. Yeah. Okay, so we are going to walk. Have some walking time. And Babs, would you ring the bell at 1045?
I will say uh, that Romy very nicely made us uh, little reminders that this retreat has been, will be, is being <laughs> recorded. And we will have a, our own little retreat code to, uh, if you want to review any of the instructions or the talks from this time, you go to Dharma Seed and type in the retreat code and you'll be in a private kind of space for just talks from this retreat. So there's little slips out on the paper, uh, out on the table. Okay, thank you. So. I've always been struck by the fact that after the Buddha had his big awakening, and he went to find his old friends, and he gave a talk. He, he didn't start with like, well, I had this amazing experience, let me tell you all about it. He didn't do that. What did he do? The first talk he gave was, he talked about the four noble truths, suffering and the end of suffering. I thought that, I just think that's very interesting. It strikes me as this was so important that he made it the first thing he said. He was kind of like saying, in a, I think in a way, like saying, listen up, people. <laughs> if you want to wake up, first of all, you have to see what's here. You have to open to yourself to the truth of how it is here. It's not about denying the facts on the ground. It's about making peace with how things are. And how things are is that in life, not that all of life is suffering, because he talked equally about the end of suffering and the path to the end of suffering. Not that all of life is suffering, but that these are the facts on the ground that you got to get, you know, you got to come to terms with. That's the basis of any true uh, liberation, to know what you're dealing with. So he described um, over and over in great detail many of the different kinds of suffering that we as humans are subject to. So I want to just briefly go through those and then focus on one of the kinds of suffering that he that he mentioned. He said basically there's three kinds of suffering. There's the suffering of the body, the suffering of being born into a human body, of undergoing birth, being in a human body subject to illness, frailty, vulnerability, disability, getting ill, getting old. If, you know, old, old, getting old is not a bliss trip, for the body at least. Maybe <laughs> some old people are pretty happy, but the body undergoes us its own unfolding and it its inevitable decay and dysfunction. It's just the way bodies are. Don't take it personally. 
it's not your fault that you're getting older. You know, it really isn't. But we, we anyway, that's... So, um, aging, illness, death. This is hard. These are hard things to come to terms with. And then there is the suffering of the mind, as we were talking a little earlier this morning. We're subject to so many difficult mind states. Despair, fear, worry, anxiety, grief, uh, doubt. I mean, you name it. You know, we're just, we're s these things ri arise unbidden in our minds and we are we are we aren't given a very good instruction manual for how to to work with them so we often get stuck in the one or one or more of the difficult mind states that we're subject to and we do the best we can but we have to see we have to we we recognize that there's suffering in the mind he also talked about Anicca dukkha, the word for suffering is dukkha. And he, he talked about another kind of dukkha called anicca dukkha. Anicca is the word for impermanence, the suffering of change itself, that things are constantly changing, outer things, inner things, everywhere we look, there's signs of this fact of things never staying the same. And and sometimes that's good news, and sometimes that's just very difficult to bear. One of the meanings of the word dukkha, suffering, which I liked, I, I th different teachers emphasize different aspects of suffering. I like the definition that says suffering is that which is difficult to bear. That which is difficult to bear. It's just difficult. And change can be one of those things, that things don't stand still for our convenience or comfort or, or safety or, you know, we, we don't get to have it like we want it. Getting what we don't want. Not getting what we do want. Not being able to hold on to what you like. This is the way it is. This is because of change. Things are always changing. And nobody asks us, you know, what our preference is for how they should change. <laughs> they just change. Ramdas um, says, if you want to be at peace with aging, you need to make peace with change. That's just the, the truth of it. Now, as we get older, some of the changes certainly may feel positive. Like, you know, you've done it. You've been there, done that, and you're now in a perhaps a more free, less responsible, fewer pressures. Um, maybe you have a sense of greater freedom some people have that, not everyone. 
or you may be aware of your good fortune in life, that you've had a life with that's been blessed with relatively good fortune. You may feel gratitude for that. Other times the changes of aging may feel out of your control, very unwanted, and we may feel victimized by the kinds of change that we experience. Changes in our bodies, changes in our brains, changes in our functioning. Out of our control, subject to laws and conditions that we don't feel in charge of. So here we are with the truth of it, that the things are, there's a sense of things constantly changing. And what is our task? Our task is to learn how to surf, how to surf the waves of change, just as a surfer does when they go out into the ocean and they don't know what waves are going to come. Maybe they've read the charts or gotten some s idea that the waves are going to be really great today. But maybe they're not. Maybe they're just not great at all. Or maybe they're so big that they're frightening, or who knows? I mean, I'm not a surfer, so I'm just making this up. But, but, but I do know that that um, I think it's a good analogy because the surfer doesn't know what waves to come are going to come. We don't know exactly what changes we're facing, but we suspect that there will be big waves in the future, and we need to learn how to navigate, how to ride those waves so we're not overwhelmed, so we don't drown, so we don't kill ourselves, <laughs> you know, so that we're not, so that we have a sense of not only acceptance, but a certain mastery of this capacity to ride the waves of change. Does that sound like a good idea? Yeah, I think it's appealing. So it's the Aikido art, you could say, of making, learning how to w go with something rather than resist it. We know that resisting is hopeless. Resisting doesn't add to anything, really. It just is suffering. But allowing ourselves to have a sense of, oh, I, I see what I need to do. I need to, how can I be in harmony with this? So this is what I want to talk about a little more, is how to be in harmony through our practice. How can we be in greater harmony with the waves of change? I want to speak about five ways, and there's probably many more, but just five kind of have stood out for me. The first essential way to come into harmony with change is to use it as a reflection, to reflect on the fact of it, make the fact of change the object of your mindfulness. Rilke said, the knowledge of impermanence that fills our days is their very fragrance. 
the knowledge of impermanence that fills our days is their very fragrance. So to be aware of the fragrance of impermanence and change as you meet it in your life, that every, every encounter that you have today will arise and will pass, will end, that many things today will be experienced and then they will end. And the moment that you're having now has, its, has the sense in it, inherent in it, is this feeling of the fleeting nature of it. Nothing can be held onto. And certainly in our practice, some people come and get the idea that practice is about finding some state and then keeping it. And we, we learn quite... Um, we learn intimately how that doesn't work. It just is a futile endeavor to try to make anything stay. Is this mic working? Yeah, okay. Um, so there are many reflections on the fact of impermanence in the Buddhist tradition. There are chants. I made it some copies for you of a few chants, one from the Zen tradition and one from our Theravadan tradition that are in the, in the monasteries. These are chanted every day because they're so they're seen to be so important as reflections. So I I thought we could chant together one of them, the Anicca chant from the Theravadan tradition, the daily Zen chant. I think we chanted this at night, but I could be wrong. Maybe we did it both morning and night. That goes, life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken, awaken. Do not squander your life. You know, that has a certain urgency to it, doesn't it? It's like, get with the program. <laughs> Don't forget. We're not immortals. Then there's the Anicca chant, which is chanted um, in the Pali language, Anicca Vata Sankara. That's chanted in, in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, where the, the monks gather and they use this as a daily reflection. We can do it together in English. Um, so I'll sing it through once and then please join. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. Let's do it together. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. So that's a something to use, if you like, in your daily practice as a reminder. Let it come to you in the shower or as you're walking or let it be a companion for you.
Thus shall you think of this fleeting world. A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, and a dream. So said the Buddha. There is this feeling I have as I get older of the dreamlike nature of all that has happened so far in my life. When I look back and did that really happen? It seems like a dream now. It was very real at the time, and now it seems like a dream, just as I might have a thought about Spirit Rock at some, you know, in 20 years, I might be remembering all the days I taught at Spirit Rock. It might all seem quite dreamlike. You any, does anybody have that experience? Yes. Where did, it's like, a, it's like, it, it seems like it happened, but really? It really happened? <laughs> what happened to all those people and all that? motion and all that urgency. Where is it now? So we, we just make it a reflection. It's nothing to solve or figure out. It's a reflection. We also, as we get older, I see this in myself as well, this tendency to think that things will continue as they are. Simon and Garfunkel, we used to sing uh, <laughs> what, what were those words? No. Um, I have them here somewhere. We say it right so we continue to continue to pretend that our life will never end we continue to continue to pretend that our life will never end right it will it will go on just as it is so i'd like to read a story about a Sufi master. Who every morning, he lived in a small village in the Middle East somewhere, and every morning he would cross the town square to go visit his, his old friend, his dear friend. And he did this like clockwork every day, going across the, the town square at the same time. And a policeman who used to patrol the town square noticed this pattern, the Sufi master always going through at the same time. And just to, to, to tease him a little and play with him, the, the policeman asked him one morning, he said, Master, where are you going? And the Sufi master said, I don't know. And the, the policeman said, oh, come on. You know where you're going. I see you every day out here going by at the same time. And the Sufi guy said, no, I really don't know. And uh, the policeman c 
kept asking, and he began to get a little irritated that the guy wasn't playing along with him. He wasn't, you know, giving him the answer he wanted, and he began to feel like his authority was being threatened a little bit. He, the guy wasn't answering the question. <laughs> so he finally got so flustered, he said, Sufi, master, you need to come with me. I'm taking you in to the station, resisting my orders. So he took him to the police station and put him in jail. Okay, later in the day, the policeman decided to go visit the Sufi master to see how he was doing. He went to see the Sufi guy in the jail. The Sufi man said to him, you see, I was right. <laughs> we think we know. <laughs> we think we know. So in the, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a, a cosmology that you can take as a mythological story or you can take it as a, a symbol of a certain kind of mind state. But there's a, in, the, in the cosmology, what is described are different realms of existence. We are in the human realm, but there's also hell realms, there's God realms, there's hungry ghost realms, there's realms where different kinds of beings uh, gather and live together. And so in the God realm, that's a place where it's like uninterrupted bliss, where there is no suffering, where the gods don't know anything about change or impermanence. And so they live for eons imagining themselves as immortals where they will only ever experience pleasure. However, even at the end of many eons, eventually each god dies. And when they enter this dying process, everybody completely freaks out and they run away from the person because it's so frightening to them. Because they're so, they haven't heard about impermanence or death or anything, so they just freak out and run away. They are very um, habituated to uh, the pleasant, and so the sight of anything unpleasant just makes them run away. We could say that this, in some ways, we could, um, we could uh, think of some of our own culture's attitudes towards death some of our own culture's attitudes have a lot, have, a, have in them uh, denial, fear of death, running away from it, not wanting to talk about it, not wanting to even think about it. And so it perpetuates for some people an illusion of the, the expectation that they're supposed to just keep going no matter what even if it means, you know, being unconscious on life support. Still, it's like fighting the good fight to stay here and show you're still in the game <laughs> or something like that. Um, so our culture, it, maybe it's maturing, I don't know, but certainly the baby boomers are wanting to do things differently and 
maybe part of the, what will be done differently is a greater acceptance of death and a greater, um, better attitudes towards those who are dying to help them die in a peaceful manner rather than to perpetuate this idea that they're supposed to fight. Doctors want to fight death. I understand that. That's their job is to f uphold life. But when it's taken too far, it doesn't seem kind to the person dying because they're going to fail. They just are. And you, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, it's they talk a lot about death and about how practitioners are meant to be practicing at the time of death. So you want to help people die in as peaceful and calm a manner as possible with a cheerful attitude, not with a grieving, oh, you know, wailing. And, you know, they have a completely different attitude towards death and dying and helping the person who is dying to feel they've done well. And now they can let go. It's okay to let go. It's time for you to let go. We love you, and but you've j thank you for whatever you've given to us. And now you can go. You know, so it's a relief to the person who's dying to hear such things. was um, a little uh, overheard conversation in the Chronicle of two young women on the street in San Francisco talking, and one was saying to the other, you know, in this world, there are old people and young people. We just lucked out. I sort of felt that when I was young, you know, like I, I just didn't compute that I would ever get old. Did you think you would get older? Yeah. You did. Intellectually. Intellectually, yeah. Yeah, so it's that illusion of what? Continuity, of immortality. We, th we thought we would be here forever. We thought we'd always have energy. We'd always have good looks. We'd always have what it takes to do whatever we wanted. You know, we had this sense of entitlement, empowerment, whatever words you want to use that just was uh, what we thought at that time. It was, a, you could say, kind of deluded, but... But there can be a delusion in our elder years as well, and that is also true that some older people, even though they're older, they're still not in, t in they're still wanting to deny death. Sam Harris, Buddhist writer, said, while we try not to think about it, nearly the only thing we can be certain of in this life is that we will one day die and leave everything behind. And yet, paradoxically, it seems almost impossible to believe that this is so. 
Our felt sense of what is real seems not to include our own death. We doubt the one thing that is not open to any doubt at all. Jack LaLanne said, I can't afford to die. It would wreck my image. <laughs> so these are perhaps attitudes that are, I don't know, what can we say about Jack LaLanne? <laughs> Admirable in a certain way, you know, but on the other hand, not realistic. So these contemplations on impermanence and death are seen to be a vital part of practice in our elder years. They remind us of the uncompromising truth of reality itself and help us to face it. Unlike the gods who run from death, we can reflect on it and gently absorb the truth of it allow the truth of impermanence to inform how we live. And there's the really important point. When you know you don't have all the time in the world, endless time, what does that do to your sense of priorities? What does that do to your sense of, well, before I die, this is what I need to do. Those are good lists to begin to, you know, take notes for. Write down some things that you want to remember that are important to you. What matters to you now? That's a, that's a really good question. So coming into uh, making this fact of impermanence a reflection, the second point is to learn to live in the present. It sort of goes together. If you know you're going to die, you will make the most of things happening today. <coughs> there was an article in the New York Times, I don't think I brought it, um, about a man who traveled in Thailand. He wasn't a Buddhist, but he was very struck by the monks' contemplation of death and all the ways in which they did that. And he wrote an article for the New York Times called, If You Want to Be Happier, Start Thinking About Your Death. In other words, he, and then he said in the article, um, when you ask people what matters to them, they'll write down these very profound, meaningful things. But then if you ask them how they're actually spending their time, they're spending their time not doing anything about those things that matter so much to them. <laughs> they may be spending their time online or watching television or going for vacations or entertaining themselves. But th so these two lists, need to come together at some point. And certainly contemplating impermanence is one way to, you know, kind of come to terms with it's, maybe it's now or never. And living in the present is this recognition 
that the past is indeed over. It's gone. Uh, often people would come to visit the Buddha and notice the, the ways in which the monks all seem so happy. And they would comment on it. Why are your monks so happy? And the, the Buddha said over and over, it's because they live in the present. For them, the past is over. The future is not yet come. They have learned the art of living now, making that their primary orientation and reference point. He called living in the present the one fortunate attachment. Think of the Buddha as not teaching anything about attachment, but the one fortunate attachment, he said, is attachment to being here now. That's, a not, that's worth cultivating. So learning to live in the present. The third way of coming into greater harmony with change is reflecting on the idea of about ownership. We claim so many things in this world as being mine. My house, my car, my spouse, my children, my, my body, my hair, my thoughts, my uh, meditation cushion, my spot in the hall. Imagine if you came in this hall and your spot was taken <laughs> by somebody else. So quickly do we claim ownership of things that have, you know, and a spot in the hall is a good one to point out because it's so, you know, in the big scheme, it's probably not going to mean that much. So, but you can see how attached you get to it, even, you know. So imagine your, your house or your garden or whatever it is that you particularly like and which particularly feels like you, your favorite clothes or your jewelry or your children, the way they've turned out. I mean, they're so clearly mine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we get to look at our attachments. This is about looking at your attachments and, and how we claim things as mine, which Ultimately, we have to let go of. We have to say, no longer mine, not mine. It will not go with you when you die. Nothing will go with you when you die. Your most treasured whatever it is. Your most treasured food, drink, clothes, your body will not go with you when you die. Do you know what dies? The body dies. The body definitely dies. We can't be so we can't be so sure or clear about the mind. That's that's open to debate. It may be that the body is what dies and the mind continues its journey. Now, you don't have to believe that, but just consider it as a possibility. 
Rinpoche Rinpoche was asked, well, if there's, there's no self, what is it that reincarnates, that takes rebirth? His answer to that was, our bad habits. Kind of makes sense. So everything we claim as mine, we could begin to investigate, is it true? Is it really mine? Or is it on loan? Rent a body, rent a house, rent a spouse, rent a child. <laughs> we have been blessed with having, you know, wonderful things in our life, but they're not really yours. And impermanence reveals the truth of that. Pablo Neruda said, in the end, everyone is aware that nobody gets to keep any of what he or she has. Life is only a borrowing of bones. We wake up, we find ourselves in a body. We find ourselves in a body. We didn't, we didn't create the body. We didn't order it up. We didn't choose it. It just somehow we ended up in it. But then we begin to think it's ours. So one of the things that occurs in our practice as we become more awake is that we get less identified with our stuff, with all the things that we say my about. My spouse, my children, my thoughts, my emotions. Everything we become less identified with. Eckhart Tolle says, how do you let go of attachment to things? Don't even try. It's impossible. Attachment to things drops away by itself when you no longer seek to find yourself in them. In the meantime, just be aware of your attachment. When you become you aware that you are identified with something, that is the beginning of loosening the attachment. When you really see, oh, my car, that's just so me. <laughs> or whatever it is. We all have stuff that we feel particularly like identified with. So we can become aware of that. We can become aware of that. Awareness is what allows us to see the mistaken identification. You might experiment with this by just dropping the word my or mine. So instead of my car, perhaps it's the car or a car. You might experiment with it and just see what it does <coughs> internally to not claim everything in the same way. This seeing uh, that we don't own things in the way that we might have imagined allows us to let go, actually, with greater ease. 
greater dispassion. It's a more peaceful attitude which can see that aging, illness, and death are universal experiences. They're not so personal. They are what every human being must face. They cannot be avoided. One's personal will has no effect on aging or illness or death. I, I'd, I'd like to skip that part. Thank you. I, I, I think I won't do that part of life. <laughs> you know, no. It's, it comes with the territory. To die is a completely natural thing. We're not diminished by it. When you go out into the woods, you know, you see a lot of life and death right next to each other. It's just natural. This is part of the way it is. We're part of nature. Of course we die. Rumi said, when were we any the less for dying? It's not a failure to die. Unlike the CEO who, uh, whose daughter was a student um, of mine and, um, no, I shouldn't say of mine. <laughs> of her daughter was a student and she described to me her father dying and he had been a, you know, kind of in control type of guy, had been very successful in charge, CEO type. When he was dying, he couldn't believe it. He kept saying, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? As if it was some sort of failure. Sad. Not a personal failing. We are having a shared experience. Every human person has to deal with dying with the fear, with the confusion, with the vulnerability of being human. So hopefully this gives rise in all of us to compassion. It's the only response that really helps anybody, helps ourselves, helps the person. Compassion is that quality of love and acceptance which arises in the face of suffering literal meaning of compassion, the quivering of the heart in the presence of suffering. That's what hearts do. When there's suffering, it hearts respond. People run into burning buildings. People offer help whenever they can. That's compassion in action. That's what happens. It's like the right arm and the left. If the left arm gets cut, what does the right arm do? It doesn't stand over here saying, oh, too bad for you. <laughs> You're on your own over there. No, immediately. Joanna Macy teaches a lot about climate devastation and all that enormous amount of suffering. And she says this really beautiful thing I wanted to share. When we suffer with our world, we discover the meaning of compassion, which is to suffer with. The only sane and sustainable response to suffering is compassion. 
It is proof positive of our interconnectedness. It reveals the illusion of separation. We feel the pain of the world as our own pain. This is a key to birthing the collective consciousness that may well be the only resolution to the global crisis we find ourselves in. Collective compassion. Collective consciousness. also think that aging and illness and death in this time is also um, about how we can all create villages of care and kindness and compassion. That just as ra uh, raising a child needs a village, so does entering the world of aging, illness, and death. So much comes when People get together and care for each other. The last of these five ways of becoming more harmonious with change is so simple that we overlook it constantly, and that is the stability of mind and heart that comes with our practice. When we sit down and focus our attention and keep returning to the present, we're cultivating beautiful qualities that will help us in all kinds of situations of change and of being resilient, learning to be resilient by this stability that happens, this calmness of our being, this sense of presence and focus of attention. What could be better than to have that in your repertoire when you are facing some difficult time? We can observe change. We can know change. We don't need to be victims of change. We don't need to be swept away by change. We can stay in our seat. That's what this stability means. We can stay in our seat. We can be like mountains that don't move. We can observe change. We can breathe with change. We can allow change to occur, but we don't have to be swept away. We don't have to lose our good hearts, our sanity, our wisdom in the face of change. That's yeah, that's what I wanted to share with you. Thank you. So we have some time for walking. Now, um, I also put on their self-guided movement because we won't have time to have a movement session today. So if you want to do some of the movement on your own, please do so.
security interests to prevent the spread and use of chemical weapons. Haley is urging Russia to end its, quote, misplaced alliance with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Russia, though, is denouncing the U.S. action and suspending so-called deconfliction talks with the U.S. military in Syria. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Trump's decision marks a dramatic shift from 2013 when his political career had scarcely begun. At the time, the president publicly appealed to then-President Obama not to get involved in Syria militarily. But since his election, President Trump has blamed the current state of affairs in Syria in part on what he described as... to get air out, which can make it hard to get air in. So I...
Tess.
So we're going to do another inquiry this afternoon, a different form of inquiry. Uh, what I'm referring to is when you get together with one other person, or in this case, we're going to get together with two other people. We're going to form little groups of three people. And maybe mix it up a little so you're not with anybody that you've been with before or, you know, be with people you don't know necessarily. Um, so we'll do a form of inquiry. It's not a repeating question. It's called a monologue, a monologue. And it's um, to speak about a, a particular subject, and I have some prompts here for you. This, the subject of our inquiry this afternoon is change. It's the theme for the day. Change. Our relationship to change, our attitude towards impermanence, <coughs> where we struggle, where we get caught, where do we welcome change, enjoy change, how do we deal with loss, how does our practice help us with change? What would it mean to have an easier relationship with change? These are prompts. You don't have to answer all of them, but take whatever has some juice for you and explore it. So what you'll be doing is um, speaking aloud to your two partners what your thoughts and feelings are about these prompts, these questions. Give yourself time to pause, to feel into it. It's not like there's a right answer and you've got to find it. It's more like, what is my genuine, what's really going on with me? Now, I talked this morning about change. You've had time to let it marinate a little bit inside of you. You've been, hopefully you didn't completely forget about it. <laughs> but then again, maybe you did. <laughs> Who knows? Um, so you you might have already discovered some things, or you might be working with some thoughts and feelings about it. That's fine to bring that up. And if there's some something about it that you <coughs> want to say that's not on this sheet of paper, that's also fine. Just whatever comes to you about change. Pause. Feel your breath. Feel your body. It's okay to pause in this exercise. You don't have to fill in the silence. You're the two people listening, your job is very important. Your job is to hold the space for the person to do this exploration. So you're there in a very non-judging attitude. You're holding them with kindness and curiosity, interest in what they're saying, but without injecting your own views like, oh, no, no, I think it's like this or something. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you should try something, you know. Okay, so let's divide up into groups of three. with each other and we can pass these out. Babs, can you pass one of these? Ed? 
One, one to every person. Haha. Let's see. We So we have three So I think it's working out. You have two, so you'll get more time. Yeah. Yeah. And what about Ed? He's here. Okay. All right. Good. All right. So decide among you who will go first. And I would suggest that that might be the person with the shortest hair. Yes. I'll time it. I'll time it. You don't need to. I mean, it, I would say five or so minutes, maybe a little longer. Do you have more? You don't have. Um, where did the pieces of paper go? Anybody have extras? Really? We don't have enough? Here's one. Who needs? I I am timing you, so we'll do this. We'll start together, and then I will time it with the bell, so you you can relax about the time. Okay, please begin.
bring it to a close. Take a moment to close your eyes and come back inside. Feel your body, feel your breathing, breathe. Open your eyes and the next person, please begin.
bring it to a close. <clears throat> Everyone take a moment to close your eyes. Come back inside. Breathe. Open your eyes and next person, please begin.
bring it to a close. Take a moment to close your eyes, come back inside. <coughs> Open your eyes and see if there's any other things you want to say to your group, anything you want to complete communicating about or a question you have for somebody, I didn't understand something you said, something like that. Anyway, take a, a few minutes just for some feedback like that.
So if you can bring it to a close, do. Thank your partners. Let's come back together. Extras, sure. Thank you. <laughs> so, would anybody be willing to share how that was for you? What did you notice about having this kind of unusual conversation with people you don't even know? Yeah. Choosing change. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yes. That's right. Yes. So what if you knew that somehow you were being taken care of? Okay. So maybe that's a direction to explore. Change comes, it's not, uh, you know, we don't love it so much when the wrinkles appear or the hair falls out or whatever it is. <laughs> whatever your favorite, you know, aging symptom is. Um, I'm being facetious, obviously. Um, you know, just to realize that it's, this is a natural process. And every other human is going through the same thing. I mean, part of, I think, the solution for, for the attitude towards aging is to realize we're all in this together. There's nobody that's exempt. Even people who think they've got it beat, won't they be surprised? You know, we're all in this kind of more vulnerable stage of life. It's a more vulnerable stage of life. So vulnerability can be kind of scary, anxiety-producing. But guess what? It also opens the heart. You know, it opens us to others who are, you know, perhaps worse off than we are. Imagine being a refugee and being old. You know, there's a lot of examples we could, we could dwell on about people who are really having a hard time. On the other hand, we can also, in our own practice, here's a, here's a practice that is actually, it's kind of brilliant in its simplicity, but it, it 
wakes us up. Here's a practice. So you're feeling sorry for yourself about aging. You can take that feeling and say, may all other women who are aging be well and happy. So you're taking your own sorrow and sending it out to wish others uh, be well. Or may all other men who are having weak knees, may they, <laughs> may they be well. You know, you can feel your kinship with others rather than make it something that's just isolating and makes you feel separate separate or that there's something wrong with you. No, you're part of this human condition. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Yes. Mm -hmm. Reminders. Yeah, we all need reminders. Yes. How how is it different? That's right, yes. It becomes more um, sometimes when we're witnessed or reflected by others, we kind of wake up to our own reality. We, we f as you said, when you're just mulling about all by yourself, you don't, it doesn't seem as real in some way. So that's one of the values of this process of inquiry, is we get to hear others and we get to be seen. And, sh and we get to share something that's important to each of us and have it be recognized. <coughs> so good. Yes, sure. 
Yes, that's right. You're on to something. That's good. Yeah. Okay. What have you found so far? Okay, check that out off your list. That's true. Uh-huh. They don't sound in conflict with each other. It's not one or the other, perhaps. Well, it sounds like there's something in it for you. You know, when something has a lot of energy for us, whatever it is, we're, we're naturally drawn, and it also seems to be speaking to us. Like there's something here that wants to be explored or expressed, or, you know, when you, d when you try to go at something, but there's no energy in it, then that's also a clue. It's like, I'm really not interested, so what, you know, there's nothing much to pursue. Oh, I see, <laughs> yeah. Well, you could try that for a while and see how <laughs> we We learn by trying things out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that just, you know, that's a nice, that's an idea. <laughs> I think you, but is it alive? Mm. <laughs> We're not here to deaden ourselves. We're here to actually become even more alive. More interested, more curious, more open. 
So whatever leads in that direction, I think you can trust. Yeah. It's not to be a wooden statue. Look like one of these fellows. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So so that's a that's that's a great thing to stay in touch with and so y you know who knows where that might take you. You might go on retreat for 3 months or something. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's totally beautiful. That's her gift to you. Yeah. Lovely. Reminds me of a story. Um, Victor Frankl tells, I think, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, about being in the concentration camp. And he was a doctor, so they let him go to the hospital and talk to patients or treat them as best he could. So he went to the room of a woman who was dying in the camp. She was a prisoner there. And there was, you know, no treatment really. There was nothing for her, but she was happy. And Viktor Frankl asked her, what, what is the source of this happiness? And she said, you see that tree outside my window? That tree and I are one. Sh this tree is life, and I am life. And she got her whatever from that tree. Same, seems similar to your mother. Yeah. So, it also is what the Buddha, I think, was talking about when he said, though the body be sick, let not your mind be sick. Thus, you should train yourself. Just because the body is sick doesn't mean the mind has to be, you know, completely filled with anger, or grief, or sorrow, or whatever. 
the mind can still be open to life, to whatever is here. So it speaks of training is, you know, your mother, for whatever reason, found that in herself. We can also consciously, you know, mo try to help ourselves move in that direction for when we are dying. Here's a poem by uh, Lama. Chocolate comes, chocolate goes, chocolate disappears. All such transient pleasures are like this. But take heart. There is another kind of happiness available to you. A deep abiding joy that comes from your own mind. This kind of happiness is always with you, always available. Whenever you need it, it's always there. So to begin to sense that in yourself, the happiness that is always available, always there. It may be the only thing you know, you have, there you are with an hour to live and that's what you got. I don't think you'll regret having practiced at that point. You'll know something about what to do with your mind. Okay, so um, maybe another poem, and then we'll send we'll we'll go out for some more walking. Um, this is one of my f most the, my recent favorite poems by a, a woman whose name is Reverend Sapphire Rose. Some of you may have heard this before, but it's called she let she let go she let go without a thought or a word she let go she let go of the fear she let go of the judgments she let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head she let go of the committee of indecision within her she let go of all the right reasons Wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry, she just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all the memories that held her back. She let go of the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of planning and all the calculations about how to do it just right. She didn't promise to let go. She didn't journal about it. She didn't write the projected date in her daytimer. She made no public announcement and put no ad in the paper. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. She didn't analyze whether she should let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. 
She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind treatment. She didn't call the prayer line. She didn't utter one word. She just let go. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause or congratulations. No one thanked her or praised her. No one noticed a thing. Like a leaf falling from a tree, she just let go. There was no effort. There was no struggle. It wasn't good. It wasn't bad. It was what it was, and it is just that. In the space of letting go, she let it all be. A small smile came over her face. A light breeze blew through her. And the sun and the moon continued to shine. Reverend Sapphire Rose. You can Google her. So let's do our walking and we'll come back at three.
So here we are at the end, an ending. So I thought I'd leave some space for any questions or thoughts and also say just a few words about going, you've been home already, so I don't need to say too much about going back out there. Maybe here I'd like to hear how it was last night. Was it helpful to have a, a little bit of a support in your mind about practice last night? Yeah? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Banded place. Oh. I guess it was kind of pleasurable. Pleasurable. So, you know, this is this is the seduction of meditation right here. <laughs> oh, I like this. I think I'll do it over and over again. <laughs> but like everything, it doesn't quite work that way. It's a little bit, it came from To be honest, I think I heard it first from Howie Cohn. I used to teach with him quite a bit. Or maybe he heard it first from me. I don't know. It was... It came. And part of the value of it is for... Especially for people who haven't done before, it it it's a little bit shocking. You know, it has a little bit of like a moment of... <gasps> Like at the end when you're not identifying as this or that. So that's part of the value. I don't know that that can happen every time or that it should. Um, anyway, I wouldn't get too attached to it. <laughs> but you can notice and it will happen spontaneously when there's just no words and yet there's a presence. So much of our world is organized around words and if I have the word then I know something. But there's something else beyond the words that we begin to we begin to, our being begins to recognize as something potent. And so the more we can just recognize those moments in our experience, the more, of course, they grow in us. So I wouldn't tr try to trick yourself so much as just begin to recognize the value of those moments when words are not filling the space something else is moving forward, it's like background, foreground. Something else is becoming more uh, present. 
Yeah. It's real. It's not like um, you're making up something. It's something to recognize. So that's why I say just see if you can find it in your actual experience without tricking yourself into it. <laughs> okay. When did that start? Um, oh. And it was before the before the Stanford. Mm-hmm. You've been practicing for oh some, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But then, so I thought, and this would usually happen when I was in the Yeah, good. I was in 40 minutes or something. Sure. So this was great. So I thought, okay, this is going to be so great. I'm going to go to. In your body. Yeah, in my yeah. body. Uh -huh. and, and it's been, I knew about the We call that a Dharma pain. It has a word. Oh, it has a label. Yes, <laughs> there is a. We. Where is it? It's right here. Uh huh. And it's been coming for twenty years. Mm -hmm. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps. But it was mm. very difficult for me to take it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that would work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would contain it. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, I use it like a mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. This pain was worse. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'll tell you a story, for whatever it's worth. I had a pain many years ago that was right in the middle of my back, like between the trapezius muscles. And it was like, what I would say it was like, was like a knife in my back. It felt like that, that kind of pain. 
and I would s it would come on come it would start I was on a long retreat and it, about ten minutes in there it was, <laughs> and I yeah I definitely had the image of myself sitting like with a knife. <laughs> Anyway, so I, that's when I heard about Dharma pain from Joseph, my teacher. I was like, oh, this is a Dharma pain. What he meant was, and I've observed this myself, other people, and I, I kind of believe it's true. Dharma pains are energetic constrictions in the body. They're places where the energy is for some reason caught and w w they come out particularly on meditation retreats because the energy is activated just sitting in a room full of people your energy is activated and it starts to move but it comes up against this obstruction that's the explanation of what a dharma pain is as far as that so I sat with this knife in my back and I would try to, you know, like move, like maybe sit like this or, uh, you know, <laughs> nothing really helped. And I kept doing the instructions to just touch it with my attention lightly, just surround it with kindness, not get freaked out by it, you know, but it was very wearing. Pains like that are wearing. But I was doing my best, probably seven weeks went by, and then one day I was sitting before lunch, one of those memorable moments when, for who knows what reason, I don't know, but the whole thing melted. It just evaporated. I was like, where is it? <laughs> where did it go? <laughs> It must be here somewhere, you know, but no, it was, it was gone and never came back. And it's, there's an element of mystery in it. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, stay tuned. We don't know. But for somebody who was in that much pain, you did seem to sit pretty still. Y you you are, yeah. But if you had been a new person and had that, you would have been out the door. Mm. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. What else? Yes. 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 Nature, you mean? Yeah.
Yeah, wonderful. A revelation. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. So we can be present. We can be present doing anything. Just because we're doing something doesn't mean it's a distraction. You know? And you're discovering that. That the very act of taking, it brings it focus, concentration, groundedness, presence, calmness, all the good qualities. Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It does. It depends where you're coming from. Yeah. So part of it, I think, when it comes to like photography or painting, because I also paint, so I recognize when I'm going for a result, <laughs> that's when it starts being manipulative rather than really in the moment. So, so what you're describing is really being in the process of it. And it's making that the most alive part. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know people who are working on that. I don't know of any places that are up and running yet, but I know there's a tremendous interest among people your age, my age, for creating, um, you could call them retirement villages. So the Zen Center is doing one. The Zen Center of San Francisco has a project in Rohnert Park. They're actively, I think, beginning to take reservations or something like that there. So you could look into that, the San Francisco Zen 
community. And then there's other people in from our this community, the insight community, but nothing, you know, they're looking and dreaming and thinking, <laughs> but nothing on the ground yet. So I would say just keep your ears open and there's definitely interest in that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. This is an expensive part of the country to be doing something. Aging in place, it's called. Yeah, there's some other name. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh, it's called the village. Uh huh. The villages. Okay. Yeah. There was a cartoon I saw of two old men sitting on a park bench, and one was saying, "Well, we've got to now. We've got to do this aging in place thing." And the other man says to him, "Aging in place of what?" <laughs> <laughs> And they help each other out, it sounds right. like. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
it, it sounds quite doable, you know, like. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's good that we have these kinds of conversations. I mean, this is part of how a village works. We talk. We hear things. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, oh, I wish I knew. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I taught with her, and I think it was some material that she used, but I don't know where it's from. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, because it... Well, you, you would if you get the recording. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had a, you had a. I had All the what? Yeah, movies. Oh, movies, yes. Yeah. Mm hmm sure. <laughs> oh, well, we talk about images and some people see some people see images. So we kind of treat it the same as we do thinking. Yeah, not to get involved <laughs> and not to be annoyed. Okay. You know, maybe make a little more space for it or, you know, not be a, l be a little interested but not that interested. There's nothing much you can do. Right. You know, you just... It's just a, it's like the mind. Yeah. The mind has many ways of talking to itself or, you know, it c does through images and colors and dreams at night and daydreams, movies, stories. It's a very busy kind of a thing, this mind, the human mind. Yet, if I said, show me your mind, where would you say it is? Where is this mind that's so busy all the time? <laughs> Nobody's ever seen a mind. They can't find the mind in the brain. They looked and looked, but they can't find it. So it's kind of a, the big mystery that this mind that's so powerful cannot be found.
But we do know that training the mind and feeding it, you know, wholesome thoughts and images is calms it down. We live in a world where we have so much input constantly. So the mind does have to kind of discharge. Okay, so you've done three days of, of practice and I'm, I will say to you that I've been very touched by your presence. You're, you're here. I did, I, this is a bit of an experiment for Spirit Rock, doing these kinds of non-residential retreats. This is the only the second one I have done. The first one was also in this room. It was with another teacher. But there was a lot of ab absenteeism, people <laughs> really coming and going. I haven't felt that in this group, and I really appreciate it. It's so much easier to teach when people are here and they've been here than when they're wandering about. So I appreciate your steadiness in coming and, and opening yourself to the practice and to the teachings. And I'd like to know, well, let me, let me so I've said that, I'll say a few more things and then I have a question for you. So um, we often say at the end of residential retreats, so this, the end of our time together today is like the first half of the retreat is now finished. The next three days you might consider to be the second half of your retreat. So you go home and you continue your practice pretty consciously for the next three days. So you're really, maybe you listen to the recording or maybe you do more conscious eating or walking or movement or um, sitting. Yes, yes. That you have a momentum going that is, I would take advantage of. It's precious to have a momentum where you want to sit, where it's not just this chore, but you actually want to sit. So give yourself that gift and, um, yeah. Now I have a question for you all, which is, as this is an experiment for Spirit Rock doing three-day retreats, you, you will be getting in your email that you get to look at, aren't you lucky? <laughs> uh, you will be getting an evaluation form from Spirit Rock to fill out, and I'd really ap appreciate your feedback because we're still learning about how to do these things. And what I wonder, I think, the most about doing these three-day non-residential retreats is what about the silence? Is there enough silence, or is the talking bothersome or not bothersome, or what would you say about that? Anybody? Yeah, well, we've got some. <laughs> 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 yeah, okay. Yeah, so you know what it's like, yeah. Oh, good. 
Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. More intimate, yeah. Thank you. That's good feedback because I do a lot of more particular teaching on those subjects in classes, in other formats. But a retreat to me ha is a retreat. We don't want to be yada, yada, yada the whole time. We want to practice. So I'm glad that came through. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the one with Donald, yeah. Yeah. I prefer that when I'm careful because I'm just feeling it. Mm-hmm. In the structure, uh huh. So um, less instruction, less dharma talking, less inquiry. Uh huh. I see. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. I understand. It takes it in as yeah, yeah. Oh, this is good feedback. There's no. We're we're making this up as we as we go. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I see. Yes. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. Sure. Okay. Yes. I see. Right. You didn't go home. <laughs> oh. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, cats. <laughs> cats don't like to be relocated. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Making mm-hmm. 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 Good. What about the talking downstairs in the in the lobby in the office? Did that bother you at all? People coming and going from the building? None of that bothered you. You could be bothered. <laughs> well, I'm I'm just because when you go on retreat up above, you don't have to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. All right. Yeah, great. Thank you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Th they have value, but they do take things in a slightly different direction. Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. The integration. Yeah. Great. That's good feedback. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's a hybrid, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm not hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm 
there's retreats going on almost all the time now. Oh, you can, there's a whole, like, uh, like, I don't know if they're B&Bs or Airbnbs or the Spirit Rock somewhere has a list in of the neighbor local na neighborhood, you know, of different possibilities of people renting a room in their house. So... Yeah, in Woodacre. Some of that stuff is in Hudson. Yeah. And I found some that were very close to me in Hudson. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, great. Oh, good. Yeah. Perhaps. Yes, right. Yes, yes. And it's also this word integration that everybody has struggled with for years and years, you know. Retreats are great, but how do we integrate the practice? And so what I'm hearing a lot from your feedback is that there's some good integration happening in different ways from yeah. going back and forth and yeah. yes that you can do this at home yeah no it's well it's not about the schedule uh, you know we're not practicing to get up at be able to get up at 5 a.m. <laughs> 
No, but we're practicing in order to, you know, live life in a more sane way. <laughs> so the integration is an important part of that. Well, good. Thank you. Glad you were. Yeah. Yeah. And then when it would just be so lovely. I think. Nobody. Yeah. Yes. And by the way, Babs, it says something about your own practice, you know. You're really talking about your own flourishing practice. That's one of the things I want to say. Yes. That I can yes. That I'm less concerned about. Yes. It's true. It's true. Uh huh. There's tremendous freedom in being invisible. I I Yeah. Uh huh. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. Beautiful. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yes, good. I well said. And um, I read about these jewelry thieves who are all like over <laughs> 70 or something. <laughs> A gang of of jewelry thieves, <laughs> and the way they work is nobody pays any attention. <laughs> nobody would believe what they were up to. In England, somewhere. Yeah, and I thought, oh well, that's one thought for retirement. I. <laughs> <laughs> Wander through Tiffany's and see what I <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, this is shame on me. I'm a Dharma teacher. I shouldn't be encouraging theft. But it is true. We do we do become somewhat invisible and there is tremendous freedom in that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I hardly ever look over here. That's the problem. Yes. Yeah. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm 
Yeah. There's less time in the day. Well, there's just less time in the day. So to do a Dharma talk, to do movement, to do some inquiry, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's that's right, you do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so see this is great feedback for me because as I said, I'm you know, we're we're learning too. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I, my nature is not to teach like that. <laughs> I, I really think people need to find their own way when they go back home. And there's some people. Yes, there is some point to that. But I think it's also learning on our own, you know, how to navigate with being with other people, being with cats, <laughs> being in a different environment. Let me see. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'll give you a little advertisement for my next residential retreat, <laughs> non-residential retreat. Well, okay. My non next non-residential retreat will be in July, at the very end of July. It's not age-oriented at all. It's about the seven factors of awakening, and it will be very practice-oriented. <laughs> there will be no inquiry. It will be very much what you're, s what you're describing. The seven factors of awakening are a beautiful teachings, one of my favorite teachings in the whole tradition. So you might look for that. Also in June, I'm doing a residential retreat on aging, uh, aging, dying, and awakening, it's called. And it's in June, I think the first part of June. I'm teaching, I'll be joined by, by um, Eugene Cash and Kamala Masters. The three of us will be teaching that together. And that will be quite wonderful. It is a wonderful retreat. Yeah, they're great teachers. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sure. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Thank you. And you you might enjoy my class series, which starts in July, I believe, or maybe it starts in June. Maybe it starts in July. I'm doing a class series where we, the point is very much what you're talking about, really creating the shared experience more than a meditative experience. So you might want to check that out. It's uh, six weeks for once, uh, once a week for six weeks, yeah. And I do other things. I mean, you'll, s you'll, you know, the catalog is so much fun to read, isn't it? It's like a, yes, it's like which two from column A and one from column B. <laughs> anyway, so thank you all very much for the feedback and uh, your, <coughs> your, your enthusiastic uh, attention. So we're running a little late, so I want to dedicate the merit of our retreat because in these times, I feel that one way I can feel like my practice matters more is to dedicate the merit almost every sitting to dedicate the merit of whatever goodness has come to me, whatever benefit has come to me, to dedicate that to the welfare of all beings because there's a lot of suffering in the world right now and I want to, I want to help. I want to do whatever I can to uh, lessen that suffering. So if I can dedicate my, my practice to the welfare of all. It helps me feel in some very small way that I am doing something, even though it doesn't seem like much. So as a group, we have generated a tremendous amount of wisdom and kindness together. We've generated and nurtured the field of dharma, the field of wisdom and compassion. And now we can share whatever merit has come to us from that endeavor with all beings, whether they are people we live with, our loved ones, our families, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, the people that we associate with every day, as well as people far away who live in distant lands that we do not know, but we know that somehow we are connected to all humans in this time on this planet. We imagine sending out our good wishes, our kind thoughts in all directions to all peoples, seen, unseen, everywhere. May all beings everywhere be at peace within themselves, 
May all beings everywhere be at peace with one another. May all beings live in great harmony and peace. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> oh, yes, she, you have an announcement. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.